Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project, by me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint whose story takes us back into pagan mythology. Name, Barlam variously of Antioch or of Caesarea. Life, died in the early 4th century AD. Status, saint, feast, November 19th. Once upon a time, there was a prince in India. His name was Josephat. His father, the king, feared that his son might become a holy man, specifically a Christian. And so, the king created a pleasure palace for his son, a place where there was no hint of death, or age, or any bad thing. Later, when his son went out to see the people, the king ordered them to pretend to be happy, to dance and sing and hide away those who were old, or sick, or dying. But despite all the king's best efforts, the young prince came upon a man who was very old, and the prince learned, that one day he too would age and die. And Josephat fell into a deep sadness. Then a Christian hermit named Barlam came from the desert. He had heard about the sadness of Prince Josephat and understood what to do. He disguised himself as a merchant selling rare gemstones, and he told the prince that he had a gem so rare so beautiful, that the man who owned it would not be sad anymore. The prince asked Barlam to show him the gem, and Barlam said it was a thing that had to be told, not directly seen. Barlam began to tell the prince stories, and in those stories was the gospel. Within the bigger story of Barlam and Josephat are many smaller stories, the ones Barlam tells, and the ones that arise from the strange things that happened to Josephat on his way to becoming a Christian. The tale involves noble knights, scheming courtiers, philosophers, doppelgangers, astrologers, sorcerers, beautiful seductresses, conniving kings, and even a unicorn. But eventually, the prince is converted and becomes a Christian holy man, just as the king had feared. And thus, St. Barlam and St. Josephat enter into medieval folklore. It's a great story. Unfortunately, it isn't a true story. Careful observers soon noticed that the story had been borrowed from Buddhism. The figure of Josephat was a Christianized version of Siddhartha Gautama, who had, so the story went, been kept in a pleasure palace by his father, to prevent him from becoming a holy man. Even the name, 
Josephat was a corruption of Bodhisattva, the title to which Siddhartha Gautama would lay claim. The figure of St. Barlam is a Christian invention, supplied to make the story hang together. The idea of a self-taught Buddhist makes sense, but the idea of a self-taught Christian does not. This fictional St. Barlam turns out to be a mere figment, and when we look a little harder, he dissolves into someone else's legend. It is an irony of history that the real St. Barlam is also tangled up in myth and legend, and his story needs to be told from both a Christian and a pagan perspective. So let us start the story again. Once upon a time, to be more precise, during the reign of Diocletian in the early 4th century, Christians were being compelled on pain of death to sacrifice to idols. And somewhere in the east of the empire, in what is now Turkey, a peasant named Barlam was found and forced to make the sacrifice along with everyone else. The forced sacrifices had begun because the emperor Diocletian worried that Christians were undermining the empire. Christians had been occasionally persecuted, occasionally tolerated. As a result, they met in secret and kept their identities quiet. But the very fact that they met in secret aroused suspicion. Were they plotting against the state? Why on earth did they allow slaves and other undesirables to take part in their ceremonies? And why, for that matter, did they claim that weakness and suffering could be good? Why turn their backs on the manly strength recognized by the pagan world? There was a lot wrong with these Christians. Another thing that pagans found weird was the Christian attitude toward other gods. Pagans had a relaxed approach to sacrificing to different gods. Just as you might pay a fee for safety to the local warlord when you were visiting, say, Syria, you might pay a fee to the local gods when you were visiting a new place. The underground religion of Christianity taught that this was wrong. The Christian god is jealous, that is, protective of what he has, and does not allow the worship of other gods. Christians claim that God rules over other gods and is equally present in all places. There was never a reason to sacrifice to a local god. Indeed, it was forbidden to do so. And then, one day, someone realized that this Christian doctrine was a potential weakness. If you made everyone make a sacrifice to a pagan god, all the Christians would refuse, and then you would know exactly who they were. Along with all the others, Barlam was told to make the sacrifice. He refused. Barlam wasn't a priest or a bishop. He had no education. Nevertheless, he had a peasant faith that was as solid as a rock in the face of intimidation. They beat him and tortured him, and it made no difference. He wasn't going to offer the sacrifice. To understand what happened next, we have to look at the story from the point of view of the Roman officials. Yes, Diocletian wanted to get rid of all the Christians. 
but we can see from those who are there, from witnesses like Eusebius, that persecuting Christians was a deeply unwelcome task for those who had to carry it out. Even setting aside the horror of torturing and executing people who had been neighbors, it was hard from a logistical point of view. Someone like Barlam left a job behind. The man he worked for was probably bugging the officials to get Barlam back. And of course, the officials had to pay to lock up and feed all these accused Christians as they tested them. Eusebius draws attention to the sadism sometimes involved in the torture of Christians, and rightly so. But he also tells of governors who defied the order, not from kindness, but to control the chaos it was causing. From the point of view of Roman officialdom, Barlam was a problem. He wasn't going to be intimidated or talked into making a sacrifice, and if he would not sacrifice, he was going to die. But it would be much better, the officials thought, if he could somehow be tricked into making the sacrifice. And someone thought of the perfect way to trick him into it. An official held Barlam's arm out over the altar and made him open his hand, palm upward. Then the official dropped in burning coals and sprinkled a bit of incense onto the coals. The idea was that Barlam would flinch and drop the hot coals. That would mean that he would also drop the incense. And so his sacrifice would be made, Roman officialdom would be done with him, he could go back to work, and everyone would be happy. In telling the story of Barlam afterward, early Christians underlined that if he had flinched and dropped the coals, that would not have counted as a sacrifice. You're not responsible for what your body does involuntarily. Most people would have dropped the coals. Barlam was not most people. He held his arm out, ramrod straight, as the coals burned. Soon, his hand was on fire, and it burned away over the altar, so that the incense smoked away above the altar on the burning limb. Barlam didn't notice the external flame, said St. John Chrysostom about a century later, since the blazing, red-hot fire of Christ's love was burning inside him. It's an impressive story. But when you first read St. John Chrysostom's sermon on St. Barlam, you might be surprised at the military framing of his conclusion. You are a soldier of Christ, beloved. Take up arms, not cosmetics. You are a noble athlete. Act like a man, not a fashion statement. In this way, let us imitate these saints. In this way, let us honor the warriors, the crowned victors, the friends of God. And by walking the same road as them, we shall attain the same crowns as them. If Chrysostom's military language seems like a bit of a leap, it can help to appreciate Barlam's story from the pagan point of view. The Roman officials were following the Emperor Diocletian's orders to save Rome from these wimpy Christians. Now, every educated Roman would have known the story about the early Roman hero, Gaius Musius. 
when Rome was still very young, an Etruscan king had laid siege to the city. Gaius Musius had swum over the river Tiber to kill the king and save the city. Gaius Musius snuck into the king's tent, but there were two men there, and he didn't know which was the king. Gaius Musius killed the wrong man, and the king got away. Gaius Musius was arrested and dragged before the king, but he wasn't intimidated. Spitting mad, Gaius Musius told the king that there were hundreds of young men in Rome who were just like him and eager to come and finish the job. He was just the first in line. The king, thinking he'd put this young pup in his place, said that he might have Gaius Musius burned alive for his insolence. And then Gaius Musius stepped over to a brazier and put his hand into the fire, holding it out as it burned away and locking eyes with the king. Look, and learn how lightly those regard their bodies who have some great glory in view. The Etruscan king was suitably intimidated by the display. He didn't want hundreds of fanatical Roman assassins coming from him, so he withdrew his army and went home. Gaius Musius returned to Rome, earning an additional family name that sums up his story with typical Roman bluntness, Scyvola, Lefty. The clever trick to get Christians to sacrifice had accidentally allowed Barlam to reenact the story from Rome's founding. For generations, Gaius Musius Scyvola had been a measure of Roman toughness. Now this illiterate peasant from the bounds of the empire had acted out the story. Who was the real Roman here? But there's another dimension to the tale. Gaius Musius Scyvola was probably not a real person. The mythology of Rome had always been so centered around the city of Rome that Romans translated the Indo-European tales of the gods and heroes into the early story of the city. Scyvola was himself an echo of an even older figure out of Indo-European mythology. But if there were Germanic auxiliary soldiers present in the Roman garrison, as there may well have been, they would have known this figure under the name Tyr. In the Norse version of the story, the gods are trying to bind an avatar of chaos and darkness, the wolf Fenris. They hatch a scheme to trick the wolf into bindings, but the wolf won't take part until Tyr, the greatest swordsman among all the gods, puts his right hand into the wolf's mouth. Tyr does so, knowing the cost he is about to pay. The wolf cannot imagine that anyone, let alone a warrior, would give up his strong right hand. But Tyr understands that the price of order is pain and sacrifice, and it is a man's role to make that sacrifice. And so the wolf is bound, and Tyr, the swordsman, loses his sword hand. The legend contains a paradox that the greatest swordsman may be the one who has chosen the right moment to sacrifice the hand that holds his sword. And so, I like to think that there was silence 
as Barlam stood there, arm outstretched as his hand burned away. The cruel trick with the burning coals had given way to a greater symbolism. Barlam had just enacted one of the oldest symbols of manliness and manly sacrifice. He had become the Indo-European image of a man, and he had done it for Christ. Barlam was quickly martyred, but not quickly enough. The story got out. The true figure of Barlam reaches into a deeper mythology than the medieval fiction. Perhaps that is why, according to St. John Chrysostom, if you are trying to understand what a martyr really is, St. Barlam is where you might start. For the martyr's tomb is a soldier's tent. And if you open wide the eyes of faith, you will see the breastplate of righteousness lying here, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the greaves of the gospel, the sword of the spirit. Even now, these weapons are available to Christ's soldiers. For just as the emperors bury their warriors with their weapons, so too did Christ. Christ.